Welcome back to WWC. Today we're exploring one of the most important topics in human history, the incarnation of the Word of God. And what we celebrate on the Solemnity of the Annunciation, and then nine months later on December 25th on Christmas, is the most marvelous of mysterious miracles. What does the church definitively teach about the Incarnation? What is the hypostatic union? Is Jesus half God and half man, or is he fully God and fully man? How does that work? And uh, what are some of the heresies about Christ? This week's episode, we'll be answering these questions. We'll exclusively focus on the fact, nature, and truth of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And there's far more to say about the nature of Christ than I can cover in one short episode. So know that there is more to say. There's more distinctions to draw, more fruitful reflection to be had. Next time, we'll, uh, in a second part to this series on the incarnation, we will explore the effects of the incarnation on Christ himself as well as the teaching of St. Thomas Aquinas on the fittingness of the Incarnation. Uh, as well, we will look at the effects of the Incarnation on humanity and on the world. And so, in other words, what is the significance of Christmas for you and I personally? Uh, but that'll be next week. So today, we're going to be looking at what does the church teach about the Incarnation? What is the hypostatic union? What are some of the heresies about Christ? And uh, I think it's going to be a very fruitful episode to really understand who do we worship? Who do we adore? Who is our Lord Jesus Christ? <music> 2000 years ago, the eternal word of God took on flesh. In the Nicene Creed, Christians acclaim that for us men and for our salvation, he came, came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he came, became incarnate of the Virgin Mary and was made man. Belief in the incarnation of the Son of God, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, is distinctively Christian. No other religion claims something so seemingly outlandish that the almighty God himself would condescend to share in his creation. Yet this is the truth. So the incarnation is a marvelous fact, what the catechism calls a unique and altogether singular event. So this marvelous reality, it's not simple to understand, nor is it something intuitively grasped by our feeble human intellect. However, there's much that God has revealed to us and unpacked through the guidance of the Holy Spirit over the centuries. The incarnation is, as the catechism puts it in 483, the mystery of the wonderful union of the divine and human natures in the one person of the word. So we'll walk through the divinity of Jesus Christ and then his human nature, and then we'll be able to talk with some level of clarity on the hypostatic union. And I'll explain what that is in a moment here. So I'm going to try really hard to keep these uh, the simple without watering anything down. Uh, I also don't want to fall into accidental heresy by being imprecise in my language. I'll try really hard to define any technical terms that I use. And my hope is that this will remain accessible while faithful and accurately explaining the church's perennial teachings on the nature of the incarnation. So first, let's begin with the divinity of Jesus Christ. So 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth was conceived and born a real person of history. 
Historical consensus confirms this reality, right? Even atheists and agnostics will say, yes, there was a man named Jesus who lived around 2000 years ago. But for Christians and for those who care about reality, we look at the Testament, uh, the, the witness of the old Testament, the Psalms, the wisdom literature, the prophets, and they're all speaking of the coming Messiah. And the Jewish people at the time of Jesus were waiting for the Messiah, the anointed one, the Moshiach, uh, who would take the throne of King David and rule as a militaristic warrior to expel the Romans from the Holy Land. See, that's what they thought of as the Messiah, right? A, a warrior king who would come to free them from Roman bondage. So what do we see in the New Testament? Well, in the New Testament, St. Matthew traces the genealogy of Jesus back to Adam, and St. Luke traces the genealogy of Jesus back to God himself, right? With, with Adam being a son of God, so to speak. So St. Matthew's genealogy also particularly centers around Jesus as the expected heir of David's throne. Now, from the perspective of today, we, of course, know that Jesus did not come as a militaristic warrior king. Um, but, but how do we know that Jesus Christ is God, that he is divine? Well, in the beginning of the Holy Gospel, according to St. John, there is no genealogy. Right? Instead, the prologue of John identifies Jesus with the uncreated word of God through which all things were made, what the ancient Greeks would have spoken of as the logos, L-O-G-O-S. And the word of God has become man, and he has dwelt among us. Literally, the Greek means to pitch his tent among us. He is the Emmanuel foretold by the prophet Isaiah. Of course, Emmanuel being God is with us. Right? The Gospels firmly show that Jesus is not merely an, an, another anointed one, another Messiah. <clears throat> he is the divine Messiah. Uh, and if you want to check the show notes for the written version of this, you'll see some references to Scripture, uh, if you'd like to, to use that as some spiritual reading. Um, he's God's own son. And finally, he is God. In John chapter one, verse one, we read in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And there's a phenomenal exploration of the claim to divinity of Jesus in the New Testament by Dr. Brant Petrie uh, entitled the case for Jesus, the biblical and historical evidence for Christ. <clears throat> I highly recommend reading that book if you're interested. Uh, and there's also an audible version as well. Now, the remainder of the New Testament further solidifies the divinity of Jesus Christ, and this fact is upheld by the fathers of the church in the first millennium as well. And, and by a singular miracle, the uncreated Son of God, consubstantial with the Father, was made man and dwelt among us. And so he is thus truly and appropriately called a divine person. As the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD puts it, and this is from uh, part two, act five of uh, Chalcedon. We confess that our Lord Jesus Christ is not parted or divided into two persons, but is one and the same only begotten son and word of God. Now, modern academics of all stripes will try to poke holes in the doctrine of the divinity of Christ. And this makes sense for those who wish to conform God to their viewpoint rather than be conformed by him. Um, but if, if Jesus Christ is God, 
then everything he said carries the full authority of Almighty God. And of course, this is the great miracle of Christmas, right? That God himself would condescend to share in our humanity, to become one of us. And so Jesus Christ is fully God, but now we can look at his human nature because Jesus Christ is also fully man. This is a a miraculous, beautiful, wonderful reality. He is flesh, true flesh, supplied from the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary. He's a divine person, not a human person. However, he possesses a full and complete human nature, body and soul. As St. Thomas Aquinas puts it in uh, the Summa um, question 10, uh, part three, question 10, article 10, he says, although Christ is not the human nature, he has human nature. So Christology, the study of Jesus Christ can get a little bit confusing if we're unclear on the terms. Uh, but so far, let's let's just recap. He's a divine person, not a human person, but he has a full and complete human nature, body and soul. He has a full and complete divine nature, uh, intellect and will. So the human nature of Christ, it's very difficult for us to wrap our minds around because, and some in the history of the church, for example, have tried to claim that Jesus' human body is just an illusion, Uh, But St. Augustine says this, he answers it in this way. He says, quote, if the body of Christ was a fancy, then Christ erred. And if Christ erred, then he is not the truth. But Christ is the truth. Hence, his body was not a fancy. So just as we acknowledge wholeheartedly that Jesus Christ is truly God, we can also acknowledge that a true human soul animates the truly human body of Jesus. St. Thomas Aquinas explains in uh, part three, question two, article five, uh, in the said contra of the Summa, he says, quote, the body is not said to be animated, save from its union with the soul. Right. And that, that's true of all of us. Um, our, our bodies are animated by our soul. And the same is true of the human body of Christ. Uh, he goes on to say, now the body of Christ is said to be animated as the church chants. Taking an animate body, he deigned to be born of a virgin. Therefore, in Christ, there was a union of soul and body. Which brings us, so we've talked about the divinity of Christ, the human nature of Christ. So how did these come together? And this is the central mystery within the mystery of the incarnation, is how the divinity and humanity of Jesus interact. How is God, how is Jesus fully God and fully man? How can we call him truly the God man? And this mystery is called the hypostatic union. Uh, hypostasis or hypostasis, depending on how you pronounce it, is the Greek word for person. St. John Damascene teaches that In our Lord Jesus Christ, we acknowledge two natures, but one hypostasis composed from both. The Catholic Encyclopedia uh, explains of this union. They say, we speak here of no moral union, no union in a figurative sense of the word, but a union that is physical, a union of two substances or natures so as to make one person, a union which means that God is man and man is God, in the person of Jesus Christ. St. Thomas Aquinas speaks at length about the nature of the hypostatic union, but one insight that I find most helpful is the difference between assumption and uniting. And he speaks of assumption, uh, so this idea of God assuming flesh, 
He speaks of assumption as an action, right? The word of God assuming human flesh. And this isn't wrong to say, but St. Thomas prefers or seems to prefer the idea of uniting or becoming. So the word of God became flesh or united with the human flesh of Jesus at his first moment of existence. Now, maybe what I just said kind of set off some warning bells in your head or raised some red flags. How did Jesus have a beginning if he's the eternal word of God? Well, here we can already run into problems if we're not careful. Right? Did Jesus have a beginning? And the answer is yes. Did the son of God have a beginning? No. Right? He's begotten, not made. Eternal, consubstantial with the father. As St. Thomas concisely explains, Whatever has a beginning in time is created. Now, this union was not from eternity, but began in time. Therefore, the union is something created. So there's a true union of divinity and humanity in Christ. So did the divine person of the word of God exist from all eternity? Yes, absolutely. But did the man, Jesus, uh, perfectly and completely united in the hypostatic union, in the divinity of Jesus Christ, uh, in his divinity, rather, with one personhood, two natures, that began, right, from the first moment of Christ's existence in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Now, there's a true union of divinity and humanity in Christ, but we shouldn't think that the divinity of Christ overpowers and consumes the humanity of Christ, Pope Alexander III in the 12th century quipped this. He said, since Christ is perfect God and perfect man, what foolhardiness have some to dare to affirm that Christ as man is not a substance. In other words, the metaphysical substance of the human nature of Christ is real and persists in it completely and perfectly united uh, to his divine nature. Now, how does this happen? How are the divinity and humanity of Jesus Christ united in time? And of course, it's by God's grace. It's a true miracle, a unique and singular event. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas echoes St. Augustine when he teaches this. He says, Augustine says, by the same grace, every man is made a Christian from the beginning of his faith. As this man from his beginning was made Christ. And then St. Thomas goes on. But this man became Christ by union with the divine nature. Therefore, this union was by grace. Now, there's no shortage of false teachings about Jesus Christ. Right? Catholic orthodoxy is a thin line which has been guarded as a precious jewel from apostolic times. Without the authentic measure of orthodoxy provided by the Catholic Church, then any opinion would be fair game. And in fact, this is unfortunately the state of affairs in many Protestant communions and dissident Catholics for that matter. Now, before we further clarify what the Catholic Church authentically teaches about Jesus Christ, it's helpful to look at some of the heresies about Christ in the early church. Uh, first, there was a lot of heresies about the Trinity. Who is God as Trinity? But then there was a lot of Christological heresies, heresies about Jesus Christ. And by looking at the, what the incarnation is not, what the hypostatic union is not, then we can come to a better understanding of what it is. Now, there's a lot to be said about these heretics and heresies, but I'm going to try very hard to keep it brief. So first, let's look at Arianism. 
Arius was a priest in Constantinople in the late 3rd century and early 4th century. Now, he believed that God the Father was uniquely God, and Christ was subordinate in every way to the Father. So he denied the hypostatic union, and he believed that Christ was the highest of the creatures of God, perhaps a bit higher than St. Michael the Archangel, but certainly not God. Uh, No small historical issue. There was a time when the majority of the church's episcopacy, the bishops, were Arian in their belief. Now, suffice it to say, Catholic orthodoxy was victorious. The Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, led by the great St. Athanasius, formulated the first version of the Nicene Creed, which we profess on Sundays. And it said, we believe in, quote, one Lord Jesus Christ, true God of true God, who took flesh, became man, and suffered. So is Jesus God? Yes, true God from true God. Now, in 428 AD, the patriarch of Constantinople was a man named Nestorius. Now, he called the union of the two natures a mysterious and an inseparable joining, but would admit no unity in the strict sense of the word to be the result of this joining. Right? So there's a divine and human nature, but for Nestorius, they're not joined. The union of the two natures to Nestorius is not physical, but moral. As he put it, the word indwells in Jesus like as God indwells in the just. So in the same way that God dwells within us, the word of God dwelled in Jesus. Now, there's not a true physical and lasting union of divinity and humanity in Nestorius' view. To explain his view, he said that Mary is the Christotokos, the mother of Christ, the, the Christ bearer, but not the Theotokos, not the mother of God, the God bearer. So Nestorius denied the hypostatic union, but unlike Arius before him, did acknowledge the divinity of Christ. So he's right on that. He just didn't believe that there was a physical union or a substantial union of humanity and divinity. So to Nestorius, when Christ suffered, he did so in his humanity, but not in his divinity. Of course, there's a whole host of problems there. On the contrary, St. Athanasius taught, uh, and he was saying this against another heretic named Apollinarius in uh, Apollinarianism. He said, quote, they err who say that it is one person who is the son that suffered and another person who did not suffer. The flesh became God's own by nature. Not that it became consubstantial with the divinity of the logos as if co-eternal therewith, but that it became God's own flesh by its very nature. I'm going to read that again because it's St. Athanasius and it's really complicated Christology, but I'll try to um, read it a little slower and hopefully it'll make sense. So they err. So in other words, people who hold this, this is how things were often put in the past, especially in anathemas. They would phrase it in a, they would say, if you hold this opinion, state the heretical opinion, then you are separated. Anathema seat. Let them be separated. So St. Athanasius said this. He said, they err who say that it is one person who is the son that suffered. So the son suffered. And another person who did not suffer, namely the word of God. And then he says, the flesh became God's own by nature. Right, so by the very nature of the hypostatic union, the flesh of Jesus Christ is truly God's own flesh. 
That's a mystery, of course, but, but we believe this. One divine person, two natures. Not that it became consubstantial with the divinity of the Logos as if co-eternal therewith. Right? The flesh of Christ had a beginning. This is what St. Thomas was talking about earlier. But the word of God did not. But the union did have a beginning. Okay. But that it became God's own flesh by its very nature. So God, when he became flesh, when he became incarnated, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, takes on flesh and makes it his own. Right? So there's a beginning of the hypostatic union. But from that point forward, we can say that the flesh of Jesus Christ is truly the flesh of God. Because what we can say of Jesus, we can say uh, is true of God. And we'll talk about that um, in the next series, when we talk about the communication of idioms and how we can speak about Jesus Christ as God. The Council of Ephesus in 431 AD condemned Nestorius as a heretic and defined that Mary was mother in the flesh of God's word made flesh. Uh, in other words, she was the Theotokos. She was the God bearer. Uh, in Latin, we would say the Mater Dei, the mother of God. The specific anathema against Nestorianism was written by St. Cyril of Alexandria, who wrote extensively on the nature of Christ. And he said this, If in the one Christ anyone divides the substances, the very nature of, of God and man, um, if if in the one Christ anyone divides the substances after they have been once united and joins them together merely by a juxtaposition of honor, or of authority, or of power, and not rather by a union into a physical unity, let him be accursed. So it's not merely a moral union. It's a true physical and substantial union. So the Christological heresies, so-called, did not end with the Council of Ephesus, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Uh, another man named Eutyches, uh, another priest, took part in the Council of Ephesus, and he was fiercely opposed to the teachings of Nestorius. However, he went too far in the other direction, and he developed the heresy of monophysitism, which held that there was only one person in Christ, which is true, but he only held one nature in Christ, which is heretical. So his denial was that Christ was consubstantial with us men, as St. Cyril of Alexandria held. Uh, Eutyches was stressing Christ's uniqueness, and he wasn't intending to deny Christ's full manhood, but that's exactly what he did. And so the error of Eutyches is the cautionary tale of not swinging too far in our refutations. Now, this heresy was condemned by the Council of Chalcedon in 451 A.D., and it was formulated in this way. Jesus Christ remained after the incarnation, perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity. Uh, and of course, the word perfect there means complete. Uh, so complete in divinity and complete in humanity, consubstantial with the father, according to his divinity, consubstantial with us, according to his humanity, one in the same Christ, the son the Lord, the only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, not intermingled, not changed, not divisible, not separable. So the next heresy is monothelitism, and it began orthodox enough, 
the monothelitists uh, defended the union of two natures in one divine person, right? which would be correct to say. But they went off the rails in saying that this divine person only had one divine will. They denied the human will of Jesus. Sacred scripture, of course, teaches us that Jesus Christ has a human will. Uh, and we don't need to go too far in, uh, to scripture into the weeds to see this, right? He performed acts of adoration, uh, humility, reverence. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays to the Father that the cup of his sacrifice and death pass without his drinking it. These are all human acts of the will. He also prays to the Father in this way, and he showed his human aversion to death, but also the human act of the will of obedience in saying, not my will, but thine be done. So monothelitism uh, was condemned by the Third Council of Constantinople in 680 A.D., and they defined that in Christ there were two natural wills and two natural activities, the divine and human, and that the human will was not at all contrary to the divine, but rather perfectly subject thereto. So in his humanity, Jesus was completely subordinate to his divinity, uh, because of course he was. Jesus is incapable of sin, uh, and we'll be talking about that next time. So by way of summary, what then does the church authentically teach about the nature of Christ in the hypostatic union? And this is kind of where the rubber meets the road. What separates Orthodox Catholic Christianity from those who hold heretical opinions? Well, Jesus Christ is a divine hypostasis, a divine person. The unique hypostatic union of Jesus Christ is the complete union of two natures, one divine and one human in one divine person without change, division, separation, or the like. When the eternal word of God took flesh, there was no change in the word of God. All the change that took place was in the holy flesh of Christ. So the moment of conception in the womb of the blessed mother, through the forcefulness of God's activity, the human soul of Christ was created and the word, which is uncreated, became man that was conceived and thus joined divinity and humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. Right? He humbled himself to share in our humanity so that we might share in his divinity, which is very much what we're going to be talking about next time. So next time on WWC, we'll explore the second part of the series on the incarnation. Namely, we'll be looking at the effects of the incarnation on Christ himself, on the world, and on us. We'll look also briefly at what St. Thomas Aquinas had to say on the fittingness of the incarnation. For example, if mankind had not sinned, would God have still become incarnate? So stop on by next time, see what the angelic doctor has to say on this. And the next part of the series should also be a fruitful reflection for us entering into Christmas. Uh, and so thank you so much for listening. I, I hope you enjoyed this episode. It's a lot headier than most of the things that we'll be talking about. It's very complicated. You might even need to listen to it two or three times or maybe read the written version that's in the show notes. And if you don't get it right away, no problem. Remember, Jesus Christ is one divine person with two human natures that are full and complete. He's fully God, fully man. If you get that, we're good. And uh, I figured we really needed to get into that to really bear some fruit uh, when we talk about what we're going to talk about next time. So thanks so much for listening. 
And we'll see you next time on Will Write Catholic. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, now and ever and forever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. <laughs>